You're listening to Never Sleeps Network. Hey guys, Aaron Broverman here just to tell you about our sponsor, Harry Tarantula. Harry Tarantula is our original sponsor. They're the OG sponsor. They were here in the very beginning when we were just a fledgling comic book show done out of some guy's bedroom. But they have some amazing product for you. Just go down to their store at 3456 Young Street and you can get your role-playing games. You can get your comic books, of course. You can get your tabletop games. They have everything. We got Pokemon cards. We've got Star Wars miniatures. They just have everything that you could possibly want. Plus, Leon, their owner, is an amazing dude. He uh, He's very honest and uh, he'll get you everything you need. And uh, they have an amazing new space there at 3456 Young Street. So you got to go down. You got to check out their merchandise. Sometimes they have weekly live role-playing games, some Magic the Gathering stuff. They're doing championships all the time. You've probably seen a lot of their stuff on our social media because we try to promote them any way we can because without them we wouldn't be able to put this podcast together for you so please if you're local to Toronto and even if you're not look them up at www.harryt.com and uh, check them out at 3456 Young Street and tell them Aaron sent you this episode of Speech Bubble is brought to you by Strangers the new album from Toronto indie rock band Summer and Youth. You can listen to the album now on Spotify, iTunes, Apple Music, Google Play, Bandcamp, and wherever you get your music. You might recognize Summer and Youth's vocalist and rhythm guitarist Jonathan Kachuba as he recently made an appearance on Speech Bubble to discuss his self-published comic book work like Paperhead. Strangers features seven hard-hitting, catchy songs that deal with love, death, rebirth, and try to make sense of life in 2019. You might have heard their single, Left for Dead, on our episode with Jonathan, and if you haven't, go look that episode up. You can find the band on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Summer and Youth, all one word. Check it out. You're listening to Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries. Here's your host, Aaron Broverman. Godspeed, old chum. Hey, fan people. Welcome to another episode of Speech Bubble. I am your host, Aaron Broverman. Uh, don't forget to follow us on social media at Speech Bubble Pod. You're listening to us on Never Sleeps Network at NeverSleepsNetwork.com. We're available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or wherever you get your podcast needs met. Don't forget that if you review our show on iTunes or any of those services, I will send you a free comic from my personal collection. Recently, we had Boo Rhodes uh, review us on iTunes in the US. She has a podcast called Boo Rhodes Scary Storytime, so you might want to check that out. She has a very sultry, spooky voice, and she basically tells ghost stories. But with me today 
is an artist of a comic called Group of Seven. His name is Jason Lapidus. He's the artist with writer Chris Sanigan. And they work on, it's basically like a superhero team based on the famous Canadian artist collective. And uh, they're also working on another book upcoming in the same universe called Peregrines. Welcome, Jason. Hi, Aaron. How are you? I'm very good. It's it's good to have you in. Thank you. It's good to be here. I seem to remember, like, okay, so the first time I sort of saw you, you were sitting across from me at another table at the Sidekick Comics. We were making eyes at each other. On the east side. special moment, yes. But I remember that there was a dude who... Like, once he found out that you were a comic artist and you were there right. drawing or doing work, he really, really wanted a drawing from you. So he's like, can I get a drawing, whatever? And you did him, like, a quick a quick drawing. So I'm like, I don't want to, I don't want to, like, go up and, like, introduce myself because he's busy with this guy doing, like, a drawing for him. So then I think we really connected on, on Instagram, right? right? What, what's what's your what's your recollection? Is that I think that's kind of accurate, right? The, yeah, the guy that came up to uh, we were in the, um, the sidekick, right, in Leslieville, and the guy who came up really wanted to also talk about his comic project, right, that he was doing, and yeah, to tell me all the obstacles that have stopped him from, right, you know, publishing his book. Didn't he give you like a drawing? I don't, I think, or I don't something. Think he gave me a drawing, but he gave me his life story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> and I'm, I am. It's important to me that you know if I speak to somebody. That it's a it's a good conversation. Yeah, that, totally. that he walks away from it feeling valued, and uh, all I have to do is give them time and eye contact, and yeah, and totally. it really goes a long way. And it's so a good it comic nice. convention skill. <laughs> um, I hope so. I think it was Jason Bone who said that he was always taught to like stand, stand at the up. table. Yeah, because I it's heard more, that on, because it's more engaging. Yeah, Darwin Cook told him that. It's, yeah, that's Dar- the story I learned from your podcast. <laughs> nice, nice. So yeah, so that's also a good skill to yes. like meaningful conversations and that yeah. kind of thing. Um, I've always seen your comic around Group of Seven, but I really started paying attention to it because it's in that like big prominent display in the sidekick i think it's it is it's probably it's probably That's best awesome. i think it's probably best displayed at the sidekick because it's like top shelf right near the new comics kind of thing well, where she at the showcases. sidekick has has been really really yeah. supportive and proactive right like she contacts me sometimes and says hey can you bring in more copies which is honestly in in like the the month or the cycle of a of an indie creator, that's such a highlight that someone takes the time to contact me and say, can we have more please? Like, that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, Chris has been on the show before and she's so supportive that she'll like buy, uh, independent artists, whole run of comics off of them and then just sell it in her shop, which Uh, is, which is great. She, uh, she brings an intangible to the creative process. Like I'm thinking about what can I do that's going to make her feel enthusiastic as a retailer. Right. And I'm not, you know, going to customize <laughs> the book you know, for one person that way, but knowing that there's someone out there who cares is really, really valuable. Yeah. It, it means a lot. So. You could do a re- retailer incentive. Like you could <laughs> do true. like a sidekick exclusive cover or something. Well, I've actually done one. Uh, oh. Not not a cover of the book, but when I was in there the day that I met you, I asked her um, if, if I could give her a drawing for the, you know, for her. And if she wanted to display it, it's up to her, but just to give her a drawing as a, as a sign of appreciation. And so I asked her what her favorite character was and someone else in the store started laughing and yelled Godzilla. And I'm like, Oh, I have to, I have to draw Godzilla. Okay. That's, 
I, I see Arthur Adams, you know, doing <laughs> drawings of Godzilla and all these other really well-known artists and they do amazing work. So I, I went home and I drew uh, like a group of seven meets Godzilla. <laughs> That's awesome. Picture, it's a comic cover. And I haven't given it to her yet because I haven't been to the store in a little while, but uh, it's penciled and ready to go. All so. right. Well, hopefully you'll get to the store before she <laughs> listens to this. I well, hope now, you're not listening to Chris. No, that's the way I like to do it. If I give myself a deadline, then I have to meet it. And okay. I, I work that way well. So cool. she'll get it before this even comes out. All right. That's awesome. Yeah. Cool. So thank you. Awesome. So um, before we get into like the meat of the matter and all sure. your work, so to speak, uh, I like to get to know my guests a little bit deeper. Right. So how did you originally get into comics? Was it a childhood thing? Definitely. Um, growing up at the end of the 70s and into the 80s, the the genre culture was, re- I thought it was really alive and it attracted me right away. I mean, my the first movie I ever saw in theaters was Star Wars. Wow. So mind is blown at two years old or three years old. And, you know, Super Friends is on TV and Wonder Woman's on TV and Incredible Hulk is on TV. Of course, Spider-Man 66, Batman 66, like all that stuff's on. Right. And I'm in all the way. Every costume, I mean, come to the dinner table as a different character every every day. Uh, So I was totally into that world from an early age, but didn't really notice that there was a comic book world. Um I think I saw copies at the dentist, like in the magazine rack. Oh, nice. And you see... a dentist. <laughs> <laughs> he was. He was. And, uh, you know, you see the comics at the, on the racks at the local stores and whatnot, like the convenience stores and things. And I never really got any, um, but I would just read them when they came around, but I didn't really get into it until... I got, I got the worst comic as my first superhero comic. I got... Are you guys Alpha Flight people at all? I'm a little bit of an Alpha Flight okay. guy. So it was Alpha Flight 22, it's John Byrne uh, in, you know, all his glory. And the issue is with a character called Pink Pearl, who is a circus fat woman. Like, um, that's <laughs> what the role in the circus, I guess, would be. The wow. fat lady at the circus. Wow. And she's secretly like a terrorist. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, anyway, so I was really struck by, you know, how good his drawings were, even of a character that's kind of un unappealing in, in, uh, even a graphic sense. Like it's, she's not interesting or, you know, you don't really want to read the book, but I saw North star and Aurora and I thought this is Canadian and it's, I'm Canadian. It's Canadian. There's something, I know this is connected to X-Men somehow. I've seen, you know, ads or somehow they're connected, but I didn't realize there were Canadian superheroes and it really struck me and I just dove in. Right. And John Byrne was still in the book. John Byrne was still in the book. Yeah. For one other six or seven issues. That's awesome. So I got on Alpha Flight in the worst issue. That's awesome. Well, I mean, it's still, it's still Alpha Flight. Yeah. So it's still great. It's still awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And and Canadians have a soft spot for Alpha Flight all the time. Definitely. I didn't realize, of course, that just because the characters were Canadian and the book took place in Canada, it's still made by an American company. So I know there's like a lot of Canadian pride around Wolverine as if Wolverine is like a grassroots Canadian thing. He, he's not. <laughs> he's an American character who is set in Canada as his origin. Yeah, you know? his origin. But yeah. There's nothing Canadian about his inception. I don't know if you guys, where you first came across Wolverine, my first experience with Wolverine, he was Australian. Yeah. On Spider-Man and his amazing friends, there's an episode where Firestar goes back to the X-Men to like visit at like a reunion and Wolverine's there and he pops a claw, puts it through like the fruit uh, and like makes a fruit kebab and asks her if she wants some fruit in a really strong Aussie accent. And I was like, that guy's awesome. He's, he's Aussie and he's totally interesting and his costume's so cool. And of course, I mean, why they've made him Aussie. And then ironically, the first movie version of 
or the only movie version of Wolverine so far. He's an Aussie. Yeah. Right? So that was kind of funny. Well, when uh, when I was exposed to Wolverine really big was the 90s X-Men cartoon. Oh, sure. So Cathal Dodd is like who I hear when, yeah. I, when I read the comics. And I think he's like Scottish, like Scottish Canadian. Right. And he does that like really raspy Wolverine Wolverine voice that you, everybody's heard. <laughs> Do you ever just yell morph when you're walking around? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No! <laughs> morph! Like, yeah, they do that whole, like, dramatic. Yeah, it's hilarious. There's another actor, voice actor, I think his name is Stephen Bloom, but correct me if I'm wrong, and he's done a ton of Wolverine voice acting, video games and other animated series, and I hear him a lot of the time, too. But Hugh Jackman, I mean, that... He yeah. nails it. It's awesome. Hugh Jackson. Awesome. I wonder who they're going to cast when they re- when they reboot it. I Do you ever find that when you're watching things, you're thinking, could that guy be Wolverine? <laughs> yeah. Could that guy be Wolverine? Like you're thinking ahead. Uh, what what will come and you start doing the transformations in your mind about I those think, actors. I think a lot of people feel that they want them to be able to get like the size of him. Right. Right. Like because... Hugh Jackman is so tall, and the right. one the one complaint is that he's not short and stocky enough, and he's not hairy enough, right. kind of thing. Right. So, so maybe they'll so look are, for some. Are you suggesting that I play Wolverine in the next movie? <laughs> is that what, I'm, that's the vibe I'm getting from you. Yeah, yeah. I'm available. <laughs> totally. Should I practice yelling "morph" into the microphone? Yeah. yeah. No more. <laughs> and like, not only is that line really iconic, but they kept they kept replaying it right in his memory, in like flashback <laughs> flashback episodes. <laughs> yeah, that cartoon. I really wanted to like it, but when it came out, I was just on the other side of growing up, <clears throat> and I I didn't uh, I wasn't around on Saturday mornings anymore to watch, and um, it it just didn't compare for me to the Batman animated series, which from an like a older teens early twenties perspective, it held up in terms of animation style and like quality of narrative. There was so much there for me visually and in the the production of Batman that I, I could watch that as a, a cartoon even though I was 20. Um, but X-Men, I, I if I had been younger, I would have been in all the way. But I just, uh, it, it didn't make my list of priorities. But I do love that it exists. And I've shown it to my kids. And, you know, I've collected all the figures mm-hmm. from Marvel Legends now for, the, you know, for that show and the ones that have come out that, you know, mirror the, the show's look. But it wasn't... Uh, and I also wasn't a Jim Lee X-Men guy. I was already finished. Yeah. I was a Burn Claremont and then like, you know, Mark Silvestri, that run, and John Romita Jr. and those artists. So around, you know, 100 to 250, and mm-hmm. then Jim Lee came on and I was, Gambit? Nope, I'm out. Uh, <laughs> I know, it's so controversial, but so it's I'm, different I'm, things appeal to different uh, people at different times. I'm so opposite because I'm a 90s right. kid. So right. I, I, I got in there like... X-Men and Batman the Animated Series are my formative right. years. So it was that double whammy of those two yeah. cartoons. Well, that was awesome. You know, Gambit's my favorite X-Men character. Right. And they never get him right, but he <laughs> is my favorite. He is my favorite X-Men character. I think my last X-Men, and I was buying them every month. My last X-Men, I think, is his first appearance. Yeah. Wow. Once they brought in Jubilee, and I thought, wait a minute, this is they're just it's a joke about a Robin costume. They're right. giving Wolverine a sidekick, and her costume was was completely a, a an on purpose joke to mirror Robin. Right. I was like, I'm not interested in a joke. Yeah. I wanted a, you know, the, it's a serious thing for me. So I wanted things more like the Wolverine limited series, the Frank Miller, the and, Brown and well, not necessarily the costume. That okay. wasn't the big part for me, but just the the tone of it. Yeah. I mean, there was some slow brooding, and it just it felt so intense. Right. So. Um, by the time that the Image Boys started really having their influence in in Marvel, 
um, it stopped being the style that, that kept my interest. And again, it was like that age in high school where you, you kind of have to make a choice between, am I going to stay introverted and read comics or wait a minute, that girl looks interested in yeah, me. I better get out. Yeah. <laughs> I have to put one thing aside to deal with the other. And uh, I would say maybe I made the wrong choice. <laughs> well, that, but there's that's a common theme on this podcast is, that everybody is. that eventually makes a career out of comics yeah. takes a break to try to I attract some did. girls. You know what I mean? <laughs> I definitely did. And, you know, it led me to places to friends that brought me back to comics. And uh, I'm forever grateful for that. It's been a lot of fun. So how did you how did you come back? Well, I was working uh, at the Royal Ontario Museum for a really long time, and that was a really awesome place to meet people who had passionate interest in in uh, being curious about the world and and you know reading and writing and making art or whatever they wanted to do that was sort of creative and a little bit off the path. And I had friends there who were comic readers still, and we had a, everyone wasn't the same grade. We had a range a range of ages. And so I remember working there one time and a kid, a friend of mine, my friend Rich brought me to read Nightfall because I had, you know, I was staunch Batman fan, but I was always just rereading Year right. One yeah. and rereading Killing Joke and rereading Dark Knight Returns. And he's like, no, Jason, Batman's back is broken. I'm like, forget it. I don't care. He goes, no, it's actually really cool. Here, read Sword of Azrael. And I remember reading like Joe Casada's art and I thought his art was really interesting. And then I kind of got hooked and... When I saw Bane for the first time, that wasn't drawn by Jim Aparo. When I saw, I think, was it uh, Graham Nolan? Yeah. Maybe it was the artist on one of the the three books that was running that, that storyline. I thought Bane seemed really, really interesting to me. And uh, I got hooked on the on getting back in. I got curious, okay, what happens next? Right. Which is like the thing you want every reader to want to know. Right. Yeah. What happens next? So, yeah, I got back in and... Nice. Yeah, it's been it's been fun. Were you always a drawer? Did you always draw? Definitely, you know, coloring books and uh, drawing was a a big part of um, my my activity as a kid. And I remember I was in the hospital for something really minor when I was in grade three, and my uncle and aunt, at least I think it was them, they brought me um, a Spider Man newspaper serial book. Oh. I have all the, the newspaper Yeah, because there was a strip that was written by Stan Lee for and a long time. I think drawn by Ramita. Yeah, it was drawn by Ramita for a bit. And yeah. so I had that sort of like, not an anthology, but it's a, col- a collection, mm-hmm. a softcover collection. And I remember, you know, copying images and being really into into that. I, ironically, when uh, Ramita Sr. did a, a tour uh, in promotion, I guess, for the Peter Parker and Mary Jane wedding, and the wedding cover. And yeah. We did those two covers, one with costumes and all the villains, and yeah. one out of costume with like the family and friends. Uh, he came to Silver Sale on Young Street at wow. Young and Eglinton. That's awesome. And I knew he was coming because I, I was on their mailing list as like a kid. Nice. And uh, I went in. My dad took me, and when I got there, you know, he signed my newspaper anthology, newspaper collection book, and signed my covers, and then he offered to draw me a picture. Wow. And I was like, yeah, okay, cool. And he's like, who do you want me to draw? I'm like, I don't know. Did you, you draw Alpha Flight? 
like, oh man, <laughs> if I could go back and give myself a smack in the head. And I, I didn't, I, for whatever reason, didn't want a Peter Parker. I didn't want a Spider-Man. Oh, I, I know. I, I so just, he, I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> so eventually we settled, the two of us settled on him drawing the thing for me. Okay. And he drew me a headshot of the thing. And I still have it, of course. That's awesome. And, uh, do you I'm have sure your anthology as well? I do. And nice. it's signed by him. It's actually at my bedside. Wow. Uh, Cause I thought it would be a really good thing with, you know, my kids come in the room. It's something they can pick up and read. Yeah, totally. It's uh, very accessible for them. So mm-hmm. it's a, it's a good one. I'll never get rid of that. That's but awesome. yeah, so there's always been, you know, art in my life and drawing superheroes and, uh, telling stories. Like those two things have always gone in tandem. Um, yeah, it was a lot of fun and always, always challenging and always a pushing. I think when I met John Romita senior, I kind of pissed him off. <laughs> Did you ask him to draw Alpha Flight? No, like... Did you draw Guardian? I, no, like, okay, so he came to Fan Expo one year with right. John Romita Jr. Right. And everybody, because of, like, the generation that goes there, was way more into John, John Romita Jr. For sure. And I'm like, well, how can I how can I get in and, like, relate to John Romita, John Romita Sr.? And I'm like, oh, I know. And I have a friend who used to be heavily involved in the comic book scene, and he... He did a parody comic called uh, The Black Bastard. Okay. Like this like pimp, like, you know, <laughs> guy. And he did a, he, one of the covers was essentially like a swipe of Spider-Man uh, No More. Right. Like where, oh, where, with, it's, with the. How perfect is that? You cover? know what I mean? With like oh, the, you know, the, yeah. the costume and the, the trash, trash and Peter walking away. But in this case, it was. His yeah. character, the Black Bastard, right. basically doing that whole thing, like all the like poses, walking through the alley, you know, bastard right. no more. It actually said, <laughs> and I thought this is a way I can like get him to like laugh or whatever. <laughs> right. So I I I took a print off of my friend's table and I was like, I'm just gonna give this to John Rita Senior, and I showed it to him, and he was like, What? Like it was it was so it was so random for right. him, and I didn't realize that, and he was like what is this? Like, what are you giving me? And he looks, and he's like, oh, and like, <laughs> I don't think he, he liked it. Right. But that was my <laughs> screwing up the John Romita senior moment. Never right? wants to talk to you ever again. You know, I could have, yeah. I could have given him a book that he actually right. worked on. I could have like talked to him about his work, but I just gave him my friend's cover and be like, look, look at what <laughs> everyone loves you so much. They're doing tribute, co- right. like tribute covers. Well, if you think about those, those covers from Silver Age, um, the ones that are most copied, they're not often the, the artists that are talked about the most. Right. I mean, Kirby, sure. There's lots of knockoff Kirby covers, but those Ramita, some of his Spider-Man covers are so commonly mimicked and, yeah. and homaged. Uh, and Cockrum's Giant Size X-Men 1. Yeah. I mean, those, mm-hmm. you know. And you know instantly, like, so good. what issue it's referencing yeah. every time you see it. Like, that's yeah. how iconic it is. For sure. That Spider-Man No More is, is awesome. Yeah. I love that they put that in the, the second movie. Yeah. Uh, there's a scene where you know Peter does that, and they tried to get the shot as close to the yeah. that frame as possible, which you can't do with because it's you know portrait versus landscape yeah. on the movie screen. But they did a really good job of making the audience members who were in the know, you know, point and go, "Oh my gosh, yeah, yeah. that's awesome, that's our book." Totally, it was totally. very cool. Very so cool. yeah, so that was my moment. But I'm I'm so glad that you got to meet him and actually <laughs> Me too. like you know get a drawing and yeah. do all this stuff. I hope that he comes back and I can actually talk to him about his actual work and not right. waste my opportunity on here's a print of some other dude's thing. 
has he passed away? I think. No, it, no. Ramita I think Senior he, has not passed. No, Ramita Senior okay. still around. All right. Yeah, Ramita Senior still around. I'm happy to plead ignorance on that. Yeah, yeah. I'm starting to lose track uh, over the <laughs> last few wood, years. Right? Yeah, yeah. I'm losing track about yeah. uh, which of those uh, amazing, uh, influential Silver Age artists are, have passed and which ones are still with us. Yeah, so totally. I hope I I hope to meet him again too and bring the drawing in and say, I'm sorry, sir. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Please draw me Peter Parker. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or whoever you'd like. Yeah, and charge me whatever you want. Absolutely. <laughs> whatever you want. That would be a nice, a nice bookend to my story. Yeah, yeah, totally. So you're you're like always drawing, and like you get to meet him. Did right. that inspire you more to become to become an artist, or? Um, I, it's hard for me to remember if it if it had a big impact on me at the time, but maybe it maybe not want to. It made me not want to draw the thing, right? Because I saw how easily he did something that was really complicated to my eye, right? Um, but. I, I wanted to be a comic artist for a long time at that age group or that age in my life. And, uh, I didn't really see any other thing I wanted to do, but as I got older, um, I, as I've heard a lot of your, your guests say in their class, they were one of the best or the best artists in their small pond. Right. And then I went to an art school as I was telling you before, and then all of a sudden I'm not the best artist in the class anymore. <laughs> yeah. And then when it was time to pivot and go to high school, do I go to the art school for high school or do I go to you know public school? And I decided to just go public and be where my friends and my brother was going to be. And, and it probably was the wrong choice creatively. And at that high school, there was no good vibe. It was just like Gordon Corman wrote. Do you guys know Gordon Corman? No. Okay. He's a, a Thornhill um, child, children's author, written dozens of novels. Okay. And um, he wrote one called Don't Care High. Okay. It was based on his high school. That was the high school I went to. Whoa. And so the vibe there was just, you know, people were, teachers were trying and kids were doing what they were doing. But I always loved being part of something and there was really nothing that clicked with me oh, while I was man. there. So um, I kind of just fell out of, of wanting to ever be in school ever again. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like I just lost that connection to moving forward with education. And by the time I got out of high school, I had already started working at the ROM and I'd got into OCAD, I mean OCA at the time, and I just didn't like being there. Mm -hmm. I, 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 was, I was kind of ruined in, as a student in terms of what uh, I could bring to a classroom. I was restless in the room. I, I wasn't open to, to taking in the information. And we were watching slideshows on a Monday morning for three hours in a dark room about wallpaper prints in, in Great Britain 200 years ago. And I'm, I, that's why I'm bald. I pulled out my hair and that, you know, I, I couldn't take it. So, you know, after that first year I was, I was done. I just, I couldn't make a connection between what I was taking in my creative energy and where I was going to go. Right. And yeah. this had nothing to do with comics. It had nothing to do with comics. Well, it, I know that it, I th at the time I knew that it, the, the skills and the knowledge I would learn, I could apply, but it just didn't feel like, it felt like it was holding me back from being creative. Right. You know, we were making color wheels. Like we had to take time, you know, work three hours to paint a balsa wood into different colors of that, are, you know, that you buy in the paint jar. Mm. And I'm like, I'm not, this is craft. I want to learn a skill. I don't want to, and of course now I'm a terrible colorist, but uh, I, I just couldn't connect. Yeah. I took a class called, we had to, called Explorations. Where we just talked about 
exploring art as a, I just, again, as a 19 year old, I couldn't, I couldn't make the connections between my creative momentum, my inspiration, my ideas and what I was doing in the classroom yeah. for, in three hour stretches. Didn't seem like a practical skill. No, I, I couldn't do it. And I know that if I went back as a you know 43 year old or 44 year old, I, I could probably make those connections much better and have the discipline. But at the time it just didn't work for me. And I was, like I said, I was working at the ROM in my, in my, my time, my free time and starting to make a little bit of money. And it was socially so appealing and it was a really creative environment and I could do what I needed to do and, and I had access to great space and amazing resources, creative people, and it felt like a better use of my time. So I just started working there all the time. Yeah, it seems like an amazing place to work. It, it really was. It was awesome. Like was when, awesome. when I went there, like they, and they seem real, like they, they made, conne- they're making connections now that I don't think you would anticipate a mag, uh, museum to make because for their spider exhibit they had like chip right. starsky and adam kubert come in and talk about spider-man right I mean, that's awesome like so quick spider-man story okay. spider exhibit so they had a spider exhibit there in about 95 as well okay and i worked at that exhibit as you know as like group organizer moving people through the classes you know through the space or something like that and on um they would do these family sundays where they would have activities for kids and they had spider-man a man dressed in a spider-man costume come in and there was a lineup of kids through the building to just get a picture and this is of course before smartphones right. and selfies and um the parents are all lined up with their kid to get a picture of their kid with spider-man and i it was my job to do crowd control and be like spider-man's bodyguard if he needs a break, I got to get the guy water i got to <laughs> escort him to the bathroom i got to make sure spider-man's not bothered by the crowd like i'm I'm Spider-Man's bodyguard, yeah. right? Fantastic. And as I'm in, you know, standing in the line, there's these two kids come up and one kid says to the other kid, oh, it's, it's Spider-Man. Oh, he, he visited me at the hospital when I had cancer. Whoa. And I don't know if I started crying or not, but the feelings, you know, like it was so, that the kid was still in that sweet spot where he didn't realize that it might've been two different people. Yeah. You know, where, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like not. Santa it's Claus. not really spite. It's like Santa Claus, yeah. <laughs> and, and you. Even though I was probably twenty at the time, it was really clear that these characters mean more than just the name of a character in a book on a piece of paper. You know, they they hold serious emotional weight for kids, and they can do a lot of good and inspire people uh, when people are in need. Like they're really powerful figures if you allow them to be at the right at the right moment and. Uh, I'll never forget that. Like just how much this kid uh, was moved by seeing Spider-Man again. And I'm sure he's like, remember me from the hospital? And, you know, Spider-Man would have shaken his head and said, yeah, or nodded his head. Yeah, hey, buddy, how are you? Glad you're feeling better. And it, those things are amazing. So, yeah, the ROM has uh, has long tradition now with, with Spider-Man and spiders. But we, I worked in kids programming. So we were running comic book courses for wow. kids. Awesome. And making connections between Egyptian hieroglyphs and comic books wow. and, and uh, you know, images on Greek pots and comic books or medieval tapestries and comic books. And it was, yeah. it was a super cool place to be. Very right. cool. And you're not the first person that's ever been on this podcast that dropped out of art school. Everybody has oh, no. <laughs> art school dropout story for sure. <laughs> yeah. I, I uh, had a, a meetup with, with Kalman yeah. recently and, and he and I, we were in a after school art school at the same time for a brief period. Uh, up in Thornhill when we were in high school. We overlapped a tiny bit there, so we, we met each other before. And we were catching up, and he was telling me, yeah, he also like was at OCAD the same time I was, and he also 
felt that void. But he he lasted longer than I did. Right. <laughs> yeah. This <laughs> to is his the, credit. Kelman Ernestovsky. Yeah. He does Captain Canuck. Yeah. Check out that episode if you haven't heard it. Uh, he cites it as the only thing he needs to give people if they need like a bio. So, so <laughs> Captain Canuck. Yeah. Is well, no, my my interview. Oh, your interview. Him, oh, there's. So, so listen to it's that. In depth. It's listen good. to that uh, <laughs> episode. Um. Yeah. So like. So you're you're doing the ROM. It sounds like yeah. you're getting quite an art education just working at the ROM. You know what? I was I had just the, the chance to do a lot of doodling and a lot of um, peripheral things that weren't necessarily moving me forward towards ever ever publishing anything. And I moved toward teaching because um, being around kids was something I've always enjoyed working with them and and making the connection between what I love and what they love and and oh you're interested in Greek mythology so am I let's. Let's talk about that and compare it to the Justice League. Like, let's have those conversations. So I, I moved always, you know, towards education, towards teaching. And um, it, it turned into, a, you know, a good chunk of my professional career was in education. And that was a lot of fun, you know, and it, it's, uh, it's paid a lot of bills and helped me meet my wife and um, help us establish our family and all that kind of stuff. So uh, the education side of, uh, of my work history has been... Uh, re- really significant, but it it takes up your time and and your creativity. You're putting your your imagination into how do I make lesson plans and how do I uh, you know connect with with the students to further their their development, further their learning. And I got to do a little bit of comic demonstrating. You know, I would teach these comic book courses, like I said at the ROM, but I didn't have anything published. I didn't have even a single page ever finished. I could just draw Batman better than an eight year old. Right. <laughs> so I had something to, to contribute, and I was like, hey. I use a, a blue pencil, non-photo blue pencil. Like, try it like that. See what you can, you know, what you can try or what you can learn by different techniques. And the kids were always really receptive. And um, But I didn't ever get to take it further. And uh, I, I learned a lot about, you know, doing single poses like pinups. Right. And, and just doodling. But I'm sure like a lot of other artists you, you've talked to or yourself, um, you, you draw until you make a mistake. And then you move on to the next drawing. You draw until you ruin it. Mm-hmm. And then once you've ruined it, okay, well, flip the page, do another drawing. Right. And it's the question just is how far can you get before ruining it? And as you do more and more and more, you learn A, how to fix certain things. Um, you learn what mistakes you're making that are preventing your drawing from ever reaching a state of completion. Like, am I ruining my drawing at the art store by buying the wrong brush? Right. So the second I go to ink it, I'm ruining it. I'm not doing it right. Or am I ruining it by using the wrong paper? Yeah. You know, so these decisions that come from experience. And then you, you learn how to push through certain errors and, you know, get further and further. And am I ruining it by never making a background? Am I, what, how come my drawing looked great when I sketched it, but when I tried to finish it, quote unquote, it, I hate it. Right. And I, I did a lot of that where I stopped drawing something because I would ruin it. And I didn't know why. And I, I, I didn't know how to get past it. Right. Yeah. So it's it's so ironic that like a dude who like wanted to get out of school as soon as possible ended up getting into teaching. Into teaching. That's pretty awesome. Well, it just goes to show you that that learning and school are not synonymous. Right. That mm. you do a lot of learning or you can do a lot of learning outside of school. My favorite place to teach is actually in non traditional environments. I love not being in the classroom. Mm-hmm. I find the classroom boundaries stifling, 
Um, curriculum can be stifling, but they're necessary things, right. obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, I coach hockey now. I coach competitive hockey. Nice. So I'm, I'm teaching three days a week in, again, a non-conventional educational environment. And the dressing room and the bench and the ice, are, are those are our classroom. Nice. And yeah. um, it's, it's really cool. I always enjoy it. Yeah. So the, the teaching part I love, the school part I don't. Yeah. The institution I... I uh, I can't be broken, sir. Yeah, yeah totally. Just, yeah. So, so then, how did like you were like? Okay, so I'm, I, I'm, I couldn't get past the stuff, you know, with my drawings. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't know how to like fix those things. How did you eventually get past it? Uh, pressure from Chris in a non-intentional way. So if I fast forward the story to, okay. um, you know, I met Chris Sanigan, the writer of Group of Seven. I met him through his girlfriend at the time and my girlfriend at the time were university classmates. Okay. And they wanted to go out for a double date. So they both brought their boyfriends. And at this time in your life, like, what are you, what are you doing? You're I'm working, working at, at the, the ROM. ROM still? Yeah, okay. I was working at the ROM. And uh, my girlfriend was at U of T. And uh, the, both, both the girls were at U of T. And um, we met at, I think, at Gabby's. For, for lunch one day, okay. probably after working at the Ramen on a Saturday morning. Um, that's why it was right across the street from the museum. And the girls are talking and I'm, you know, paired awkwardly with this guy I don't know. And he's, I'm five years older than Chris. So he's like a kid to me at the time, like jokingly. Right. And we get talking and within two seconds we realize we kind of like all the same important things. It's like, you like the Leafs? I like the Leafs. Batman animated series? Yes. You like X-Men comics? Yes. Wilco? All right. High five. Let's order burgers and stop talking to the girls and just make all these connections that we can make. And he and I had became fast friends. And every time the four of us got together, it was like, okay, let's just, let's talk about the things that we like and let's catch up on our own things. And right. girls can talk about Pride and Prejudice or Shakespeare <laughs> over there, which are and, cool things. And the girls we wanna, were already best friends. They were already tight. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, then... Both the couples, uh, you know, we, we continued on our relationships and I married my girlfriend and he married his girlfriend and we both got to participate in each other's weddings and be around for those changes in life. And then we've, they've got their two kids and we've got our two kids and they're in similar age groups. And, uh, Chris and I always just enjoy talking about movies and, and music and craft beer or whatever we're talking about. And one day I, my wife and I, Laura and I go to visit him and his wife, Danielle, uh, in Guelph where they live and we've we gone down to the playground by the river with the children to let them play so we can talk about the Leafs yeah. or whatever it might be <laughs> and he says hey I, I got an idea can I pitch you an idea I was like sure Chris just go ahead talk and he starts to name people and he says I have this idea for a World War One kind of comic because you know it's coming up on 100 years and I, I had an idea for a comic book and I found something really interesting. Like imagine something like um, the Expendables, but Canadiana, and they're not all—they're not all expendable. They're all really important to the 20th century. And Im- imagine for a minute that th- this is who's on the team, because I found out they're all in Europe at the same time in real life—real Canadian historic giants that are all in Europe at the same time fighting, or at least in in the war effort in some form. He says John McRae. I'm like. The poet? He's like, yeah, but there's more. Okay, John McRae, Con Smythe. I'm like, from the Maple Leafs? He's like, yeah, Con Smythe. I'm like, okay. 
actually it wasn't in that order, but I'll keep going. He says the most successful slash deadliest sniper in Allied forces history, a guy named Francis Pegamagabau. It's like, okay, deadliest sniper. It's like, yeah, he's got more, he's got more than 300 kills. All right. That's like 150 more than American sniper from the, the movie. This is like a really, really successful in the most terrifying way. Successful. He says, Lester B. Pearson, the prime minister. Yes. A.Y. Jackson. Like, okay, I, I know the painter, yeah. Frederick Banting, like Banting and Best? Yes. Norman Bethune, like Donald Sutherland from that movie? He's like, yes. There's, I don't know if you guys know who Bethune was. He was a humanitarian, uh, like social, hard socialist and communist leanings Canadian who brought, eventually brought uh, Western medicine techniques to mainland China and taught people in rural China uh, like blood transfusion and brought these these medicinal techniques that saved thousands and thousands of lives to the point where Chairman Mao himself gave Bethune's eulogy. Uh-huh. Like that's how important this guy was in China and his contribution to, wow. to the development. Like he has a Chinese name. And if you drive up to Gravenhurst, Bethune House, like the, his, his family's home, right. the sign's written, of course, in English and in Chinese script. Wow. In Gravenhurst. Like you don't expect... Spadina, I expect some Chinese script, but you know, it's the world's changed and it's amazing. So the tourism coming from China to go see his home, it's there. So he's telling me all these guys and he says, now imagine they're on a secret mission. And he says, I, I'm just trying to think of a name, but all I could think of, cause we don't want, you know, super friends or like team Canada or something that sounds like an American title just made Canadian. He goes, I want something really Canadian sounding. And he says, group of seven. I say, I'm in. <laughs> That's awesome. Like, I love it. I love it. I love the idea. Like I, I'm, I love Canadian things and and things that are uniquely Canadian that aren't twists of American concepts. So he names all these guys and tells me this idea that there's it's a a fist flying adventure story, um, fictional but with these historic figures. And then he said like, do you, would you want to make it? And I start sweating and you know creasing my brow and not not sure what to do because I I had a hunch how much it would take to bring an idea into the, you know, into reality to actually birth this thing. And I didn't know if I had the time or the strength or the ability to get any of it done. And, uh, it didn't take much arm twisting, but I said, yeah. And we, we tried to get uh, as much of it out and online by the start of the hundredth anniversary of world war one. So the first shots I think fired with Canadian forces, um, maybe it was April 8th, 1917. So April 8th, 2017, I think we released the first eight pages online, like the, the prologue we released online and then it went from there. Wow. And that's, that's sort of how, so Chris came to me with like a first draft of a full script. Um, and we had, we had talked about structure and themes and ideas and all those kinds of things. And he was really receptive to getting input and feedback to, um, try and get it into uh, a comic book style because he hadn't written a script before and I hadn't drawn a, a book before, but we kind of had an idea that we wanted that sort of 22-page floppy, you know, chapters. Mm-hmm. And um, it just went from there. That's yeah. awesome. It sounds like a Canadian League of Extraordinary <laughs> Gentlemen. It, that is definitely uh, in in the right direction for it, sure. We yeah. were... That, that name came up many, many times for us in the, in the process of trying to understand what we, I think Chris probably said to me at the time is like, leave extraordinary gentlemen. 
meets Expendables meets like Canadiana. Right. Yeah. That's awesome. It's the only comic, by the way, that was selected as like a choice thing or like singled out by Canadian Geographic magazine. What a surprise it was to us. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I I find that, um, wonderful and a little embarrassing, um, because like a lot of self-deprecating personalities, you know, you, you, although you want to be successful, you kind of don't want anyone to give you any attention. Right. Um, because you know that you can do better and you know that your work is never good in your heart. So the fact that anyone read it, it's like, I, I, it's hard. Mm-hmm. More pressure, right? Um, maybe, maybe it's the pressure, but for me, it's just like, uh, I just want to keep my head down and, and if no one's noticing and my work is bad, that's okay. But if my work is bad and people are noticing, you know, I, I love a lot of great artists and my work isn't there. Right. So if I can't be great, I'd rather, <laughs> rather be dead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just so, toil in obscurity. <laughs> uh. it's, there's a conflict, that inner conflict. Uh, I listened to, or I read a, a nice quote and right now that of course his name is escaping me because I'm under pressure, but there's this quote about the creative process about artists and how a lot of artists have great taste and, but their ability to execute is low. And their taste is up here and their, and their abilities down here and their career is all about closing the gap. Right. And so I'm pushing really hard to close my gap as much as I can. And if you were to say, what is group of seven about in like a joking way, I'd say it's about how many pages does it take before an artist can either close the gap or quit. Wow. (laughs) You know, like you'll, with each issue, um, I'm, I'm learning so much with every page I'm learning and learning and learning and trying to get better and. Um, I'm hoping that one day someone sees issue six and someone sees issue one and says, is that the same artist? Right. Cause, Cause six is way better. What happened with the guy in issue one? And that's good. Like you need that drive. Yeah. You need to yeah. think like, I don't want you to start out thinking you're like the best oh, hot shit no. artist ever. No, right. No, no, like no, it's never. better to think you suck and right. try to get better and always <laughs> right. be like, this isn't good enough. And right. Like, you I know. will always think that I suck and yeah. I'll always try to get better. Exactly. Always. That's, yeah. that's the comic I want to read. I yeah. want to read somebody striving to be the best that they can be. Not a person yeah. who thinks that. I don't understand why Marvel isn't ringing my, isn't <laughs> no. ringing my phone. I'm the one telling them, please don't call me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no. no, there's no, I have no, no big question in my mind as to why uh, I'm not a famous comic book artist. Like that's not even in, right. in my, uh, in my mental sphere at all. Yeah. I love, I love the moments where I can look back and see what I would have done differently. But, you know, I, I would say like the biggest thing that I've learned through the process of finishing the three issues, the fourth one's here in the bag beside me, and it's like 95% finished uh, image-wise, um, is learn how to get things done. To go from ha- having it on my drawing board to getting it into your hand or on the shelf of the sidekick or wherever it is, like the, willing that into existence, going from just having it in the creative stage to actually having it printed, completed, and out of my hands that's maybe one of the most valuable things I've learned. Sure. Is, is saying goodbye to it, passing it on to the next stage with the printer and being okay with it, even though it's never going to be perfect. Right. Finishing things and trying to like know that like the deadline is more important than the perfection. Like defining what finished is. Right. And getting back to the core of it, which is you're trying to tell a story. Hmm. So how much do I really need? How many more lines do I need to tell the story? And the answer is probably none. 
Right. The answer is I probably needed to choose my lines more carefully at the beginning, minimize what I'm doing, make it more clear, uh, and, and get it out of my hands as soon as I can because I'm going to over-render. I'm going to add lines I don't need. I mean, the faces don't need any lines other than the features, right. really. Mm-hmm. Some shadow is great because it creates depth and, and clarifies form, but there's a lot of panels. I mean, there's one of... In the first issue, I think my first reveal of John McRae's face, I totally over-rendered. And I just added one gray brush stroke, it like ruined the whole face for me. I can't look at it. Wow. And in issue four that I'm doing now, the faces are way more, um, they're way more minimal, but way more expressive because I'm, I'm drawing more economically. Right, it's, right? it's the main features that define right. the character of the person. Yeah, getting yeah. the angle right, getting them more on model, um, I, I got the chance to talk to Nate Powell, who illustrated the March series. Okay. He's um, a, really, a really talented cartoonist and a really generous um, talker with his time. It was really nice to me about it. And so he, he illustrated March, which is a um, biography or autobiography of Congressman John Lewis, an American congressman, and telling the story about the you know, Selma, Alabama, the marches, Martin Luther King, mm-hmm. civil rights movement. And I'm, you know, drawing these pretty well-known Canadian historic figures, none of them are iconic looking. Like none of them are Martin Luther King, right. day named after them, statues in, in yeah, streets like, in every city. Yeah, I don't know if people know what John McCrae looks like. Right, you know? right. There's only a few images and that's partially the time that he that he lived, right? right? It wasn't during the age of television and, right. and uh, you know, video cameras um, and film and all that stuff. It's sort of before that. There's only a few photos of him that people will recognize. So you're right. He's not an iconic looking, his image is not iconic for the Canadian people the way Martin Luther King is for the world. Right. So I just asked Nate in that context, like, how do you, how do you draw a person who everyone knows what they really look like? How do you ever be satisfied with it? He says, A, draw as little as possible, but B, take the images you want as reference, then work out your not caricature, but your cartoon way of expressing them, and then never look at the references again. Just look at your drawing. So make your model, and then don't look at the source material anymore. Get away from it. Stick to your model. And I try to do that, and of course now the characters are becoming kind of, you know, cartoony, because I'm not looking at photographs anymore, because they inhibit the storytelling. Right, and now you have ownership of, like, their image. They're becoming characters. Yeah. Right, if I ask you to draw Batman... There's been 80 years of people drawing. We all know in silhouette we recognize Batman. Right. His, his image is so so ingrained in our brain. We all know how to draw him. But no one's drawn John McRae mm-hmm. in, in comic book form. Right. So it's taking me 90 pages to figure out what does comic book McRae look like. And that's exciting because right? you get to define Super the look exciting. of a historical figure in comics. For, for me, it's really exciting. I'm glad you think so too. Yeah. It, it, it is. It's it's a lot of fun. But of course, no, like McRae in issue four doesn't look like McRae in, on the cover of the biography. That, right. that, there's a really classic portrait of him that everyone, if you you know Google search him, it's the first one that comes up. Um, or any of those guys, they all have plenty of photos, but the characters in the comic book are taking a life of their own, which is a good feeling. I like that. It's good. Like, it's good that you're just looking at your own drawings and defining them, you know, as characters. Right. Because I imagine that the research for something like this with so many, uh, you know, historical figures could right. be super, super overwhelming. Like, you could get really in the weeds right. on, like, how do I connect these people and, like, right. all the research that you have to do for each individual character. Like, never mind 
one, like one could fill a comic right. book, but you're doing like seven of them. So yeah. how, how, how's the research for this? Like when you initially started, were you like, oh my God, I got to figure yes. out these people <laughs> inside and out. So Chris is an archivist and he loves research and information studies. So getting facts about their life was, a real, I think, a real pleasure for him. It was, uh, there was a real spark, you know, he was sitting on a, a stick of dynamite and he was really ready to go. And I think the pleasure has been where you and I just talked about distilling them down to a cartoon form visually. He also was, okay, how do I make this complicated, real 3D human being with inner conflict in their lives, how do I make them into a comic book character? What elements can I take out that make them fit on a team? So we've all read enough comic books where we've seen a team dynamic. You know, uh, you got your stoic leader, you have your wisecracking side guy, you've got your sensitive other, like we, all those elements that have become that, that archetype. Yeah. So how do we fit these real seven characters into archetypes to make the book flow? Mm-hmm. And it's a challenge. And, and he was really excited to experiment with that and play and of course, we're going to step on the toes of history. Of course. You know, Chris and I sat in a, I don't know how to describe what it was, like a conference of heritage fair organizers. Okay. And we gave a presentation about our book to Canadian heritage people. Right. And there was an individual there who really took exception with the fact that our story was not an accurate representation of history. And we, we kind of want to say it. It's not a textbook. Right. It's, it's never saying this is history. It's fiction. It's a comic book. It's supposed to be kind of fun and it's an adventure, but we're never suggesting that these things happened. And if John McRae or any of the other characters make a comment that they wouldn't have said in real life, that's okay because Abraham Lincoln, vampire hunter. Right. You can play with historic figures. It's okay. Right. That's one of the ways that we actually interact with history is stepping too far to the left and stepping too far to the right with them. And the, the, the history is malleable and, and it's all about which perspective you tell it from. Um, we're never going to ever encapsulate everything that's happened in every aspect of the past. But if we're able to get people to read, have a good time, interact with the story, and then go... I wonder what uh, Francis Pegamagaba was really like. I, what did he really do? Like, did he make that kind of face? Was he? Did he carry those specific weapons? I'm kind of curious. He seems like a really interesting and and uh, you know under underserved historic figure. I want to go learn more about it. And now he's since we've started and nothing to do with us, but since we started the series, he's now part of the history curriculum in high schools in Canada. Whoa! So he gets you're talked changing, about. You're changing the no, education. No, 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 no. Okay. It doesn't have to do with us. Okay. I would argue that we were thinking the same thing. Okay. As people working on curriculum at the same time, we both saw that there was a really interesting historic mm-hmm. figure yeah. that was underserved in, in Canadian culture. Okay. Uh, definitely no impact from us on on curriculum, not at all. But you're doing what the best teachers do, and I, <gasps> I hope you recognize that they provide. That sounds cool. They provide a springboard right. for pe- for right. kids to get interested in this sort of, in and this sort of thing. Right? We feel and you're passionate doing about that. We yeah. we've had the good fortune of being invited into classrooms too in high schools in in Guelph and uh, and in in Toronto and getting a chance to talk to students about. You're allowed to take history and get creative with it, 
And you can use these creative interpretations as, like you said, a springboard into going and learning more about it. Right. Um, I think that that's a lot of, that's the fun of it mm-hmm. is we should know uh, those stories and we should investigate history in the way that it connects to us. So whatever you know, you might like about history, I might like something else. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm very, I, I love narrative. I love, I love stories and I love hero stories. And someone else might like documentary. Someone else might like to know all about uh, technology and what technologies were used in the war. So if this works on somebody and gets them interested because it's, it attacks a person who is interested in narrative, if it gets them wanting to know more about history, that that's great. There's so many things. Cause like, it's really interesting. Like when that guy came up to you and was like, this isn't historically accurate that puts right. in sharp relief the responsibility <laughs> right. that everybody thinks you have as soon as you right. play in actual events in history. But yeah. it also shows that the people that really want you to get it historically accurate aren't actually doing it. They're right. just criti- they're just criticizing it. Well, right? uh, th- this individual, I think they really wanted, um, they had a specific agenda when it came to how history is being told in terms of um, equity and I mean, there are almost no women in our series at all. And that is not an accurate representation of what happened in World War I. There are, are women involved. And of course, combat was predominantly male, but there are women who, who did see combat and, and action, so to speak. And there were so many women involved on the, obviously the nurse side. Right. Um, that are on the front lines, they're out there. And we're underserving that narrative. But as I, as I did, I didn't want to fight with the person on the spot, but we're not telling that story this time. Every story by very definition excludes somebody. Right. For me to tell your story, I'm not telling mine. Right. You have to define the parameters. You have to. And so this story happens to be, yes, another male centric story as if we need another one. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's where, that's the story that we're telling from, an, from our hearts that we're, we're invested in. And it's not supposed to be the be all and end all of, of representing World War One. Right. Um, it's just this story about these seven characters that engaged us. Um, and someone will come along and tell another story and that's okay. It's, and we, I welcome it. It's nothing wrong with uh, telling whatever story that you're inspired to tell. Right. Yeah. Also the like, you don't have to be like super accurate to history, no. but in your drawing, you do have to be kind of accurate to the period, <laughs> don't you? I try. I try. Okay. Um, yes. So certain things I take liberties because I think it makes the, the, the art flow better or makes it more interesting for me as an artist, or I notice certain things were being a barrier to me. So uh, drawing weapons has been challenging and I don't have to draw an exact accurate pistol from from that moment so we kind of gave ourselves an out there's a moment in in issue two i think where the characters receive a crate from the like weapons specialist and i don't show what's in the crate and all those weapons can be custom right and they could have access to things that didn't make mass production for another 30 years right so we're we're taking some liberties and that's really okay right. so um if these guys are going on a secret mission Maybe, you know, their version of Q from James Bond gives them a couple weapons here that, that again, never went to the factories right. and never saw mass circulation amongst British and Canadian forces. And to me, that's totally okay. Like, I have these guys all wearing some sort of black shirt, but, like, why? And and it, 
soldiers didn't wear that. So my joke was, well, they're not supposed, A, they're not supposed to be wearing any Canadian um, paraphernalia in the story because they're not, they're supposed to be kind of undercover. And if they get caught, they're not going to say who they are. But B, they're actually wearing hockey sweaters. Right. <laughs> I mean, it, it happens off panel and off script. But in my mind, Con Smythe, like some of these guys are hockey guys already. They took, they need something warm to go out. It's April, you know, they need to go out in, in, in that weather and they need something dark. So they take a couple hockey sweaters, they dye them black and that's what they're wearing. And I thought it'd just be so funny in my mind, but it, it also just gave me the freedom to not have to worry about, okay, how many buttons are on this army jacket and how's the collar? And, oh, in 1917, they were wearing that collar, but in July of 1917, they're wearing that collar. Right, right. And, oh man, I, I won't be able to ever draw. Right. I'll always be worried about getting the details right. And that will get in the way of my storytelling. It's so also... I a let good, go. Yeah, yeah. It's also a good way for the hockey... Like, the hockey sort of thing is a good way to, like, integrate <laughs> Con Smythe on a team. Like, right. how do you integrate a dude who's known for hockey with a guy who's, like, a sniper? Like, wh- well... Like, how do you define the roles of each of the people? In those two examples, I mean, Con Smythe is a decorated World War II and World War One vet. Mm-hmm. So he saw a lot of combat and... Um, so he made it easy for us. Once we found out, once Chris did the research and found out what Khan got up to during the war, he was an absolute easy fit as a um, roguish, mouthy, pain in the butt. Right. You know, he, and, and first one to throw a fist. And he's small and feisty. And it's, how could you not love that guy? And again, both of Chris and I being Leafs fans... We, we just, we melted for that, that idea. He, he meant the world to us in that, in the creative like gestation stage. We really, we, we liked him a lot. So, you know, he makes the second cover. You know, he's punching like John McRae in the face, which <laughs> I love the idea that, you know, Con Smythe is, is punching John McRae, the poet in the face. It's so much fun. Um, so th- those two guys and Pegamagabo and Smythe, are two really active military guys. Right. So they were the easy ones to put in. But then the question is, well, on the team, we have three doctors, mm-hmm. a painter, a poet. Like who assembles a team to do that? And if you read the whole series, uh, when you get to the end, you'll kind of realize that there was a, there's a real function for having um, a certain group of people that have a mix of mindsets. Mm-hmm. Like their mission requires that they're not just soldiers following orders. Right. So you'll have to read, and if you want, I'll tell you uh, off um, mic. I'll spoil okay. the whole thing. Okay. Don't Secret, spoil the whole secretly thing. at the end, they get together with the vil- the villains, and they create a giant uh, tapestry together of hat. No, obviously, <laughs> they do interpretive dance together, and they solve all the conflicts in the world. Yeah. Um, but there's there. This is a really odd group of people to send on a secret mission. Right. Fighting, but. Pearson, Lester Pearson at the time of the war was young. He lied about his age and got in and he saw some, I don't want to say off the books, but he saw some really active service, um, in the Mediterranean before this story happens. So he's already kind of like a veteran of, of combat by the time we meet him in the book. And he's a highly intelligent guy Like goes to, I think, Oxford after our story. So he's, we call him the scholar, you know, Chris created like a one word, um, role for each guy. So, you know, like the medic, the lab rat, the poet, the sniper, the scholar, what did he call Smythe? 
Oh, it'll come to me later. Yeah. But uh, kind of like the opening credits of like the A Team, right? <laughs> you know, like the rogue. <laughs> Oh, you know. now we have to do a mock A team. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. But that idea of having these each guy with a different, a, a different sort of role that fits a, the A team or any right. kind of team dynamic. Yeah. It's exactly what it's supposed to be. So yeah, we do fudge them a little bit, but uh, it really works. Like we have one guy who's obviously a, he the lab rat, like uh, Frederick Banting, and his partner. They they discover insulin. Like they they. That's a huge contribution. And so we have, obviously, there's a role that a laboratory plays in the story, and they need him there. Right. And you need a guy who can patch up people who are wounded on the field. So there's a good reason to have Bethune there. Mm. Uh, when it comes to why do we have an artist from the actual group of seven there? Why? Do, what role can A.Y. Jackson play? So there we took a, a, a bigger liberty and said, okay, this guy's got um, kind of a... F- Photographic memory. He's a, a ma- he knows the landscape better than anybody else. Right. So he can be our map navigator. The reconnaissance intelligence guy. Yeah, and yeah. he's a smart guy, mm-hmm. and he's level-headed. Mm-hmm. Um, not a combatant in the in the in a great classic sense, but he he serves a role. And McRae, again, I love that that when we you search up John McRae and and Google, it comes up that he's a poet. But the guy wrote like what one poem? Yeah. He's a twenty-year a member of the Canadian forces, artillery man. Hmm. Like I fired cannons in the Boer War, the South African War as it's called now. Hmm. This guy is, he's not, I mean, calling him a poet is is really important for, you know, our sense of Canada, but there's way more to his identity than four letters. Right. And yeah, we all know him for that one poem, but this guy was a career military man and a doctor, a medical doctor. So we love that there's other sides to these human beings that we can borrow and, and play with to make it a, a better story. Right. Yeah. And it's getting successful enough that you're creating a universe. So I just yeah. want to briefly touch on your next project. Sure. So we're going to launch a, a series called Peregrines, which is about four nurses in World War One who have um, a sort of secondary, or maybe it's a primary purpose, is they, they are in like the spy espionage world. And who better to be able to cross... Uh, the front lines than four women who can speak all the languages in Europe. And I mean, no one suspects the nurse as being this a figure of, of, you know, physical threat and, and combat and whatnot. So there's a story where, yeah, these, these women go on an adventure and they are sent to uh, stop uh, a weapons trader. And they're all like four very deadly characters and they're high flying Nice. They're high, the high flying peregrines. They're very, very cool. Awesome. So the script is done and the layouts are done for the, the first half of the book. And uh, when I finish Group of Seven, I'll start on doing the, the tight pencils and inks and stuff for peregrines. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so this episode comes out before the Toronto Comic Con. You're yes. going to be there, right? I am at Toronto Comic Con this year, which is really, really exciting for me. Big deal. And uh, that's at the end of March break. I think March... What, 16, 17, 18, yeah, right around the middle then? middle of the month, yeah. And uh, in May, no, June, I'll be, Chris and I will be at uh, the Niagara Falls Comic Con, nice. which is super cool as well. And I think those are the only two big events we're scheduled for in this half of the year so far. If you go to the Niagara Falls Comic Con, uh, yes. I might be there. But if I can't be there, you should go meet George Perez because it's kind of his farewell tour and it's yeah. his only Canadian stop. Definitely. I have some, uh, some kind words for the man. No, he's... <laughs> He's awesome. That's really nice. cool. It's good heads up. Thank you. Awesome. What about online? Where can people find you if they want to stay in touch? On the internet, our website is www. 
dot group of seven comic dot ca and the seven in group of seven is the number because nice. we didn't want to tread on the artists collective right. so group of seven comic dot ca on instagram you can find me at at jason lapidus facebook same thing and on twitter same thing nice yeah and the comic is available it's available at silver snail beguiling um, west end comics the sidekick of course um, I believe even at page and panel nice. and I hope I'm not forgetting anybody. And then if, in Guelph, the dragon stocks it as well. Nice. They've you guys should supporters. get it on comicsology, di- like digital. Yeah. That sounds cool. Yeah. yeah I would like to, yeah. do they, they do black and white? I don't know, but it would be cool. Cause it would open it to a wider audience. Yeah. We're on gum road as well. Okay, cool. So it's, it is on uh, a digital platform, uh, but comicsology sounds like a good idea too. Nice. Definitely. Awesome, man. It's been great having you in. Thank you for uh, having me. I've, I've learned a lot, and now I really <laughs> want to check out this comic. Okay, me too. I want to keep reading it as well. All right. <laughs> Talk to you later. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye-bye. This has been Speech Bubble. See you in the future, friends. Never Sleeps Network. This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com. Speech Bubble on Never Sleeps Network is hosted by me, Aaron Broverman, and features audio editing from Armin Zoberi. It has announcements by Craig Mayhem and Sean Ward, with graphical assistance by Brittany Tice.